So over the last few weeks, we've been hearing about Paul and his many companions as they've been travelling around the Greek and Asian world. They'd spent a fair bit of time in Ephesus. They've now moved on from there. They travelled through a few more towns, doing amazing things in the power of the Holy Spirit. But now Paul is thinking ahead to where he needs to go. So let's pick up the account from Acts chapter 20 and verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I live the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Holy Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. 
Well, good evening. Let me add my welcome uh, to that of Graces. It's great that you can join us tonight. We're working through the book of Acts um, throughout this term. We've come to this section in Acts 20, which is a well-known section with some really um, challenging things, I think, for ourselves to reflect on uh, in our own opportunities today. So let me pray for us, ask that God might help us as we come to his word, um, that he might teach us tonight. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can gather here. We thank you that in your word we have your very instructions to us, that we hear your voice as your spirit applies your words to our hearts and minds. And we do ask again tonight that you would speak to us sharply and clearly as we hear the Apostle Paul in his interactions with these leaders at the church in Ephesus so many years ago. Help us to see the direct connections for ourselves today as we think about uh, life in our church and the opportunities that we have uh, to encourage others. So grant us uh, clarity uh, to respond in repentance and faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever been in a protest? Uh, the first protest that I was ever part of was in year seven at high school, some year 11 and 12 um, leaders in our school called our whole student body of 1,500 people at Lamia High to strike against the injustices of the system. We were going to strike after lunch and sit on the bottom oval until we got change. Well, we went down there and we were not really standing against injustice. We were sitting Gandhi-like, you know, it was a peaceful process. But really, to this day, I'm not sure what the failures of the system were that we were protesting against. You see, my friendship group had some older siblings in year 11 and 12, and we were just roped in with very little idea of what was going on. And we sat down on the bottom oval with several hundred students for about half an hour and waiting to see what would happen. And, and what happened was that the vice principal came down brandishing a cane and basically chased everyone physically back to class hitting the slower-moving students that couldn't get out of his way quick enough. Now, it was certainly a confusing protest. We didn't really achieve anything. In fact, all we saw was a crackdown on unruly students like ourselves in the weeks that followed. But I share this story because as we come to Acts 20 tonight um, and we focus on Paul's instructions to the Ephesian elders, we need to realise that the last time this group of guys saw Paul was at a chaotic protest where Paul had been forced to leave their city three months earlier. Uh, since then, as we saw last week in Acts 19, after his two year of ministry in Ephesus, it ended in a citywide uproar, uproar. But since then, he had left and traveled by land uh, through Macedonia, northern part of Greece, down into southern Greece, eventually sails across. Um, back to the mainland of the province of Asia, which we call the nation of Turkey today. But he doesn't go inland back to Ephesus to encourage the leaders. Even though he knows this is the last time he's going to see them, uh, that he's heading for Jerusalem where imprisonment awaits him, but he doesn't want to go back to Ephesus. And you'd think, well, it's obvious, you know, last time he was there was a riot. He nearly got killed. All his friends are trying to protect him. But no, it's because he wants to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. He's got a plan of where he wants to get to in quick time. And so rather than going back and spending an extended time in Ephesus, he gets the leaders from the church to come to him on the coast as he's going down uh, the coast of Turkey. 
And so um, he does the first set, few verses explain all those movements. And then in verses 7 to 12, he's in Troas on the west coast of this province. And then by verse 17, he's made it to Miletus. And it's there that he calls the Ephesian elders to come and see him. Now, what he's going to give them is important. This is his final farewell. This is his parting instructions to these leaders of a key church that he spent two years planting. So the big question I want us to consider tonight is this. How are shepherds to care for God's people? Paul's going to instruct these leaders about how they should continue to look after the church in his absence. So the question we need to consider is how are shepherds to care for God's people? Two answers to that question tonight. The first answer is this, by teaching the Bible and living it out. By teaching the Bible and living it out. So have a look again at verses 18 to 21 with me. Verse 18, uh, Luke records Paul's speech. You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Now, as we begin looking at this passage, a definition is in order. The term elders, overseers and shepherds are used interchangeably through this passage. And that's because they all refer to the one role. It's referring to those who have spiritual oversight over a church, who are shepherds, who care for God's people, or as it's termed in this passage, his flock. And of course, in our church here at WBC, uh, we employ pastors, but they're part of a wider eldership team that are seeking to provide oversight of our church. But notice here in Paul's example of what he did in Ephesus, in verses 18 to 21, he's reflecting on his own work. He's recalling his model of ministry to these people who had witnessed it. They had observed him. He had established their church. He's trying to remind them of this is the way I approach things, so this is what you need to continue in. So notice here in verse 19, Paul reminds them firstly of his posture. Now, how did he conduct himself when he was with them? Well, he says it was one of humility, of emotional involvement, of perseverance under testing. Paul's reference to serving with tears indicates his emotional connection. He had invested his two years of life fully in this place. And his reference to the plots of the Jews uh, refers back to the initial opposition that he got from his fellow Jews. Remember when he first went to Ephesus, we saw last week in Acts 19, he went into the synagogue, as he always did firstly, preached to the Jews. And then after three months, as so often happened, he was rejected by them. Some of them started maligning the gospel. They were attacking him. So he left speaking in the synagogue and he went to the lecture hall and spoke to the Gentiles largely from that point on. And so Paul's reflecting on those struggles he faced at the start, but he persevered in the midst of that. And in verse 20, Paul goes on to talk about his ministry method. If that was his posture, then what was he actually doing as he spent time with them and started this church? Well, he says that he faithfully preached the gospel to them. Publicly, he says, in, which is in the synagogue and the lecture hall, but also privately from house to house. So he's meeting up with families, explaining further God's word, investing time in people, teaching the gospel, which he summarizes in verse 21. 
And the purpose of all this preaching and teaching, which he speaks about in verse 20, is that people might be brought to repentance and faith, verse 21. And so really, step number one in understanding Paul's approach, what's important to happen, what he needs to remind these people about, is that shepherding must involve a constant presentation of the gospel because it's the basis of our salvation. And even for those who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus, we need to be reminded of God's grace, his undeserved favour shown to us. It's that which shapes our life. We need to keep hearing it more and more. It's not just that seekers need to hear the gospel in order to be saved, but we Christians too need to hear it. And he goes beyond that and he says, well, we don't just need to hear the gospel, but we need to hear all of the Bible systematically taught to us so that we might keep growing up in our faith. And this is why Paul says in verse 20 that he'd not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful. And then in verse 27, a few verses later, he repeats that idea and he says, well, I haven't hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. And the result of that is that Paul can boldly claim that as a result, no person's blood can be laid on him. Now, that's a pretty confronting phrase, isn't it? Why does he speak in that manner? He's using the language of guilt here, causing a person's death. What he's doing is echoing the words of Ezekiel chapter 3, where God's prophet was told that he had to speak the word of God to proclaim it clearly to people, give them an opportunity to turn back to God and repent. But if he didn't explain these things to God, then their blood was on his head, as it were. He had failed to give the warning that God had entrusted him with. And so Paul is saying the same here. He has the opportunity to be faithful in the presentation of the message that brings life, the gospel. If he fails to do so, then their blood is on his head. But he says, no, I have taught the gospel faithfully. I have taught all of God's word to you. I've said anything that would be helpful. But this kind of language makes you realize how serious the task is, how seriously Paul took it. Now, I think sometimes as we hear somebody saying, oh, we've got to keep hearing the gospel, we've got to hear all of the Bible, we somehow feel that, oh, well, I've heard it before. Do we need to keep banging on about this? Why do we need these constant reminders? I think what we see here in Paul is that our danger is not that we will get bored with the gospel, that should never happen to us, but rather that we'll drift from the gospel. We need to keep coming back to what God has done for us in the giving of his son. And so his example to the leaders in Ephesus is this is what you need to do. Keep preaching God's word, teaching all of the Bible. But as you do so, have an attitude of service that is humble, that's fully committed, despite any disappointments that come, to persevere regardless of the opposition that you might face. Well, opposition can come in different forms, can't it? It's perhaps more subtle in our society here. But we've just heard in our mission spot tonight from James and Sheila Roy. I mean, James is someone who has persevered for 20 years in one of the most difficult countries to proclaim the gospel. As he mentioned, 98% Muslim. But he has been sharing the gospel fearlessly for two decades. Every Easter, he walks through the streets with a giant cross on carrying over his shoulder with a whole group from his church and hands out gospel tracts and New Testaments. As you've been hearing, they do this at Christmas. They have calendars. They'll go around with a truck and a loud hailer, and they'll tell everyone that will listen about the gospel. But this isn't a place where it's often difficult. You might have caught up a snippet um, in that video that at the moment things are really difficult. 
It's difficult in many areas of the world because of the war that's going on in Gaza. Um, Muslims are feeling far more militant, far less open to hearing things from those that speak from another position of faith. And so at the moment, it's really tough to share the good news, but it's been tough the whole time, I've got to say. When I got to visit him in 2017, I was hearing some of the things he'd faced. And in the years prior to that, these early years of ministry there, he was often harassed on the streets because of what he was doing. One afternoon when he was walking back to his house, um, two Muslim men approached him in the street. They bailed him up and said, look, we know where you live and we know where your two children go to school. And so if you'd like to see them remain safe, we're telling you now you better stop speaking about Jesus. Well, you know, I couldn't help asking questions to his wife, Sheila, after I'd heard that story and said to her, you know, are you worried every time this guy goes out the door? Like he's, you know, he's even explaining the gospel outside mosques to anyone that will listen. She said, no, I'm not afraid. All of our days are numbered and James will keep sharing until it's his time for God to take him home. Until that day, he will keep going. We're with him. Well, that's the kind of perseverance that I long to have. It's inspiring because it's in a much more difficult environment and yet he shows far greater courage than I often see from believers here. And in verses 22 to 26, we again see the seriousness of the task of a shepherd for Paul. It was difficult in his day too. Notice in verses 22 and 23, he talks about all the hardship that's ahead of him. He's going to Jerusalem and he's going to be attacked by people and thrown in jail. He already knows that because God's been telling him that. But led by the Holy Spirit, he's going there anyway. And then he gives this wonderful, succinct statement in verse 24 about his attitude of living for God as a believer and should be ours too. Notice what he says in verse 24. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. You see, ministry in particular... And living as a Christian more broadly is about testifying to the gospel of God's grace. It's a serious task. It's going to bring suffering with it at different points. And his words, I consider my life worth nothing, are really just an echo of his far more famous statement in Philippians 1, verse 21, where he says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I mean, this is a man who is sold out for Jesus, whose commitment is surely deeply challenging to every one of us. And as we reflect on this for ourselves today, perhaps you're wrongly comforted here tonight by the notion that, well, it's only somebody like Paul who needs to be that committed. I mean, he's this crazy zealot. He's the apostle to the Gentiles, right? So it's all right for him to speak and act like this. But surely God doesn't expect that of me. Or perhaps your reasoning today or this evening in our church life is that, well, maybe some people have to be like Paul today. Maybe that's for missionaries or pastors or maybe the elders that Paul's writing, speaking to here. But, you know, again, 
it should be just for, the, for this preserve of a chosen few. You know, perhaps I don't need to be included in that. Now, we set aside elders in our church, but we hold to the priesthood of all believers. Every single one of us is to testify to the gospel of grace. Every single one of us is to declare the praises of God who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. 1 Peter 2. We may not be called to be a missionary like Paul. We certainly won't have his unique foundational role at the beginning of the church, but the principle that he's talking about here applies the same to all of us. We're all called to serve, God's with the, serve God with the gifts that he's given us and to do that wholeheartedly. And so we've got to be really careful because we can easily be sucked in by our pleasure-loving, comfort-seeking culture that somehow sharing God's word or serving Christ's church is something that, well, if I must do it, is kind of something I dabble with on the side when it fits in, when it suits me. You know, when things are going well at work or, you know, in my studies I'm on top of them or it's uni break or whatever, maybe then I'll have some time to think about actually living for Jesus. Living for Jesus isn't an add-on to your life. It doesn't fit around whatever we think the major part of our life is, our education or our work. Serving God's plan, being Christ's disciple, that's never a sideline interest. Neil Postman in his classic book about American culture called Amusing Ourselves to Death said this about the Christian faith. I believe I am not mistaken in saying that Christianity is a serious and demanding faith. When it is delivered as easy and amusing, it is another kind of religion altogether. Well, he's right, surely. You know, if it's not serious and demanding, then it's not really the Christian life that we're living, perhaps, and it's not Jesus that we're following or serving. Which leads me to a second answer to our question tonight. How are shepherds to care for God's people? Well, firstly, they're to teach the Bible and to live it out. But secondly, they're to guard against threats. They're to guard against threats to the good news. Notice again what is recorded from verse 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Well, the task of elders or indeed any leader who has responsibility for fellow believers in any particular ministry in the life of our church is surely summarised in that opening phrase of verse 28, keep watch. That's a big part of the role. Keep watch against challenges to the flock. Keep watch against challenges to your own faith, as he mentions in verse 28. And what is the nature of this challenge? Well, in verse 30, Paul states that it's the distortion of the truth. The truth there is just shorthand for the gospel. Any distortion of the gospel of grace that leads people away from trust in Jesus' perfect finished work is a confusion that needs to be guarded against. 
And Paul says he modelled this in verses 20 and 21. And distortions of the truth will be recognised, right, if we keep hearing the gospel all the time, if we keep hearing God's word preached faithfully. It's like a bank teller, isn't it? They know instantly when a counterfeit note comes up because they're dealing with the real thing all the time. When the fake thing comes, it stands out a mile. should be the same for Christians. As we keep hearing God's word, if we keep reminding ourselves of the gospel, when we hear something that's taking people away from grace, we'll instantly recognise it and we'll stand against it. But what's the source of these distortions? Who's, these, who's going to throw these curveballs at us that we need to guard against? Well, notice they come from two locations. Firstly, in verse 29, Paul says that challenges will come from outside the church. He states that savage wolves will come in among you. And so Paul's reminding the Ephesian elders that you know, heretical teachers uh, will, could come from outside of their congregation in and lead people into confusion. And he's not going to be around to counteract that any longer, so they need to do that. Now we think, you know, is he over-emphasizing this? Does this, this really happen? Uh, this is a big problem, actually, in the first century. One of Paul's other churches that he's just visited before he's come back to talk to these guys is Corinth. And the whole letter, second letter to the Corinthians, is all about false teachers that have come in and presented another gospel. 2 Corinthians chapters 10 to 13 is all about these people leading others astray. This was a live issue for Paul then. It's a live issue for us today. Secondly, notice in verse 30, challenges will come from within the congregation. Perhaps this is worse. People that you trust and know, hey, they're one of us, they're here how can they suddenly think any different? Maybe we should be following what they're saying. But Paul's saying this is a concern as well, and that was something that would follow in Ephesus. You remember that Timothy, his young charge, was sent to watch over the church in Ephesus. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Paul has to write to Timothy, stay there in Ephesus, that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. This was a problem. Later in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John records the words of Jesus as he speaks to the seven churches, and one of those seven churches is Ephesus. And he says in that that they have shown discernment in testing false teachers and not tolerating them. That means these elders on this day, as Paul spoke these final words, were listening, right? Because they followed through on this in the years that followed. They were to stay awake like shepherds watching their flock for any wolves that might come in at night. Well, how are we to think about this? I think sometimes we read passages like this and think, this Paul, he's just too intense. <laughs> he's over the top. You know, if I got to be worried and thinking about these things all the time, is this too much? I mean, surely God's people can't be led astray like this. I mean, men, women and children who become Christians are the bride of Christ. But it's easy for the bride to not be faithful to the bridegroom, Jesus. It happens every day, sadly. And the one of the biggest threats to the church today is the church wanting to be accepted and loved by our culture. We want to be liked. And it explains all kinds of problems over the last two or three decades, doesn't it, including Various churches and denominations seeking to approve same-sex marriage, to bless such unions, because that is what our culture now 
finds acceptable. Even though the Bible rejects such a departure from God's blueprint. But that pressure crowds in. People cave because they want to be loved. They want to be accepted. They don't want to be the ones that are railed against, rejected and laughed at. We need to be reminded of the empty wisdom of this world over and over and over again. Of course, we don't simply want to be attacking our godless culture all the time either. We need to be sharing the gospel into it. We want to see people drawn from it and place their trust in Jesus too. There's a tension there for us as believers today as we interact with the world around us. As Christopher Watkins states in his brilliant book, uh, Biblical Critical Theory, this is how we should think about it. If Christians approach our culture merely with the aim of denouncing or humiliating it, they are unlikely to make any impact, will almost never bring healing, and are more at risk of not recognising where their own thoughts and instincts are actually more cultural than biblical. But similarly, if they approach our culture only with the goal of affirming or even praising it, they are signing up for biblical unfaithfulness and ultimately cultural irrelevance. It's ironic, isn't it? People are so keen to be relevant. As we seek to follow the world and we're not distinctly following God and his word, we actually lose any relevance in our society. Well, how do these instructions to the Ephesian elders to guard God's flock, to shepherd his people, apply to us more individually? Let me put a couple of things to you tonight. Firstly, whether it's our congregation's pastors or other leaders of groups, your home group or the youth group or whatever it might be, there are people that have been placed as overseers that God has appointed by his Holy Spirit, verse 28. And we need to be thankful for them, but far more than that, we need to pray for them. Do I support these overseers that God has provided? Am I aware of the seriousness of their task, of their accountability before God? We've got to realise that there's always going to be threats to our unity as a church. They'll come from without, they'll come from within, there'll be distortions of the gospel. So please, please pray for your leaders. Pray for yourself if you're in a position of leadership that you will lead and care for people well. Secondly, if you are in a position of spiritual oversight or pastoral care in any form, then this passage is asking you some searching questions. Paul's instructions are directed to elders within the church in the first instance, yes. But the principles that he outlines here are applicable to anyone who has any responsibility for another believer. So whether you're a deacon here tonight or you're a home group leader or you're a youth group leader or you're a play group leader or a kids church teacher, whatever it is in the life of our church or outside of our church, there are some challenging thoughts that Paul is bringing to us here. For example, are we serving with the humility that he speaks about? Are we persevering when it's hard? Or do we give up quickly in the face of opposition or difficulty? Are we standing against influences that would drag people away from the gospel? Are we holding strongly to God's word, making it clear wherever we have opportunity? 
I mean, this was God's challenge to the Ephesian elders through Paul, and they were his weighty final words. They're weighty because people's eternal destiny is at stake here. Heaven and hell stands before every person on this planet. And when final instructions are important, we tend to take heed of them, don't we? Especially when the situation invests the instructions with some urgency. Uh, one of my favourite films is the Italian film from 1997, Life is Beautiful. And it's the story of an Italian Jew, uh, Guido, played by Roberto Benigni, uh, who lives in his own almost romantic sort of fairy tale world at times. He's, he's got such a fertile imagination, he just wants to sort of imagine things rather than being very grounded in all the day-to-day -day struggles that people are facing. The movie is set just as World War II is beginning. And because of his Jewish background, he is rounded up with his son and they are put in a Nazi concentration camp. And he then has to apply his fertile imagination to trying to help himself and his son get through the horrible experience that would follow. And there's this scene at the end of the movie where he is giving instructions to his son. He realises from the movements of the Nazis in the concentration camp that this could be the final night, that perhaps the Allies are coming because everyone seems to be packing up things. There's a lot of chaos going on. He's not sure what's going to happen, whether um, those who are incarcerated like himself will be shot, what's going to unfold. And so he finds a hiding place for his son and gives him instructions to stay there until he, hear, he hears no noise at all, that he only come out when things are perfectly quiet. This could save his life. And spoiler alert, it does. He survives as a result. The son listens because the stakes are high. It's life and death. It's no different spiritually as we think about the gospel and presenting it clearly and caring for God's people. We're confronted with the seriousness of the task in this passage from Paul of caring for God's people well. The eternal destiny, yes, it ultimately is in the hands of our sovereign God who will determine how all things are unfolding, but we are his instruments and we've been entrusted with these weighty tasks of caring for his people and doing so faithfully. And so we need to safeguard his flock against distortions of the gospel. We've got to serve in a way that perseveres. Paul says in verse 26 of this passage, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. That's a big statement, right? The question I guess it leaves with us is, will we be able to say that of our ministry or at the end of our life in the way we've conducted ourselves and shared God's word and responded and interacted with fellow believers and those that are seeking the truth. I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Being a leader in God's church is a weighty task. We need to heed Paul's final instructions, take them on board, live them out. We need God's help to do that. Let me pray for us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given your Son and that if we have placed our trust in him, we have the wonderful help of your Spirit to live as you call us to do, to live under the Lordship of our Saviour. Help us to live in a way 
particularly as we have responsibility in your church, does so aware of the importance of the tasks that you entrust us with, aware of the need of our frailty and of your help in the midst of that. Help us by your spirit, we pray, to hold firmly to your gospel of grace, to defend it, to serve with perseverance and with a sense of the eternal in all that we do. Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.